Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. During our Q&A session, please record your name and affiliation. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. Now I'd like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Mike Strega, Director of the Polar Institute and Director of Global Risk and Resilience Program at the Wilson Center. Sir, you may begin. Thank you very much, Operator. We appreciate your assistance. And good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone who's listening in from around the globe. This is Mike Spraga, as was announced. I am the director of the Polar Institute and the Global Risk and Resilience Program. And I want to thank you all for joining us this morning for what we call at the Wilson Center Ground Truth Briefings. We use these briefings uh, on on issues ranging from uh, day-to-day issues that flare up or are of interest around the globe or to highlight specific programs specific global issues that we think need uh, quite a bit more concentration and discussion. That fits both of the categories here this morning, a rather interesting program from the Arctic to Africa, emerging research on human to wildlife transmission of COVID-19. So I want to thank you again all for participating in this program. This morning's program and the program title reflects uh, a number of realities. First of all, this pandemic is indeed global. From the Arctic to Africa, it goes beyond the human species. And and I think it's a stark reality of our globalized, interconnected society, which knows no geographic, political, social, or economic boundaries. As the invitation and highlight on the website indicates, COVID-19 began as a coronavirus transmitted from wildlife to humans, and now research and practical steps on the ground are needed to identify the risk COVID-19 poses to wildlife, mitigate the modes of human-to-wildlife transmission, and protect the species most at risk. From marine mammals in the Arctic, including our beloved narwhal, to the endangered mountain gorillas in Uganda, there are multiple means of transmission that could place these species at risk, cascading impacts for ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. And I am very pleased to have with us today three leading experts in their respective fields, each adding to our understanding of this virus, its implications, and real-life impacts it's having. So our speakers today, three experts in their fields, Dr. Harris Lewin, the Robert and Roosevelt Osborne Endowed Chair in Evolution and Ecology, Genome Center, Department of Evolution and Ecology, College of Biological Sciences at UC Davis. Dr. Gladys Kalima Sikosuka, founder and CEO of Conservation Through Public Health, and Dr. Martin Nuia, Harvard and Case Western Reserve Schools of Dental Medicine and the Marine Mammal Program at Smithsonian Institution. They will speak in that order. I want to remind everyone that's online that if you have a question, uh, not a statement, but a question during this discussion, please hit star one on your phone, and that will bring you into a question and answer queue. And questions will be relayed to me, and then we will open those either to a specific presenter or uh, to the group. So with that, let's begin, and I will turn the virtual floor open to Dr. Lewin. Harris, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. Sfraga, and to the Wilson Center for this opportunity to discuss our recent research. As Dr. Sfraga mentioned, the preprint of our study has been made available on BioArchive, and the paper is currently undergoing peer review. Even as a preprint, our paper has generated enormous public interest because of the implications of the results for public health and for conservation of threatened species, which I will discuss during the briefing. I'd like to begin the briefing with some background information that will help you to understand our study. First, as everyone is now aware, the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is the cause of COVID-19, a major pandemic with more than 3.3 million confirmed cases around the world and more than a quarter of a million deaths reported in 187 countries. The actual number of infections is unknown, but likely to be many, many fold greater. So what is known about SARS-CoV-2 infection in other species? So far, it has been shown that cells from just a few species can be infected by SARS-CoV-2, which I'll call CoV-2 for short. 
These include rhesus macaque, green monkey, ferrets, and Syrian golden hamsters. In recent weeks, COVID-2 infections have been reported in a Malayan tiger at the Bronx Zoo and in domesticated cats. Rats, mice, and dogs apparently cannot be infected, although there is an unconfirmed report this week of a COVID-2 infection in a boxer dog. And that's about all we know. So where did the virus come from? Research China identified the virus's closest known relative in a horseshoe bat. This virus is called RATG13. However, given the relatively large number of differences between COVID-2 and RATG13, it is highly unlikely that the virus jumped from horseshoe bats directly to humans. What about pangolins? Pangolins carry SARS-like coronaviruses and have been reported as a possible intermediate host. But recent molecular evidence that I will not detail here suggests that this is not the case. To summarize, most scientists believe that the virus passed through an intermediate host and acquired important molecular changes before it entered the human population. However, the host species for COVID-2, before it jumped to humans, has not been established. How does the virus infect humans? It is an established scientific fact that in humans, the cellular receptor for COVID-2 is ACE2, which is an abbreviation for angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. The ACE2 protein normally functions in the cardiovascular system and is important for regulating blood pressure. Now, critical information for our study came from two groups of Chinese researchers who recently reported the three-dimensional structure of the human ACE2 protein complexed with the viral spike protein, those mean-looking, red, spiky-looking things you see in cartoons of COVID-2. A total of 25 amino acid residues that are associated with the viral spike protein on ACE2. The gene encoding ACE2 is found in all vertebrate animals. Therefore, all vertebrates have the potential in theory to be infected by COVID-2. I want to emphasize that several other host cellular proteins are necessary for cellular infectivity in addition to ACE2. The purpose of our study was to use species-specific differences in ACE2 to predict those species that are susceptible to infection by COVID-2 and might have been the intermediate host for the virus before it was transmitted to humans. For our study, we compared the 25 spike binding site sequences of ACE2 in 410 species of vertebrates, including 252 species of mammals, 69 birds, 68 fishes, 17 reptiles, and four amphibians, with the goal of identifying species that might serve as a host for COVID-2. By analyzing the similarity of the 25 amino acid binding site residues on the human ACE2 receptor, we developed a method for predicting which species ACE2 proteins would be likely to bind COVID-2 spike and by inference would be susceptible to infection. We also use other approaches to study the receptor and its evolution to support our findings. I will not discuss those results today due to time limitations. So what did we find? The ACE2 receptors of 103 species scored very high, high or medium, for their ability to bind COVID-2 spike protein. Of these, 41, or 40%, are classified as threatened by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. The ACE2 receptor in all 18 non-human old-world primates and great apes studied, including gorilla, chimpanzee, bonobo, orangutan, and rhesus macaques were found to have all 25 virus-binding residues identical, completely identical, to human ACE2. Therefore, our study predicts that most, if not all, 
old world primate species are highly susceptible to infection by the virus via their ACE2 receptors. And importantly, 12 out of 18 of these very high scoring old world primates are on the IUCN red list. Another group of animals, 27 in all, was predicted to have high probability of binding of the virus by their ACE2 proteins, and thus may also be susceptible to infection by COVID-2. These include four species of rodents, but not mice or rats, cattle, sheep, cervid deer, and goats, and several species of whales, including the narwhal, which will be discussed later by the world's leading expert in narwhals, Dr. Martin Nouia. Of these 27 species, 10 turned out to be on the IUCN red list, including several species of lemurs and the giant anteater. The Siberian tiger, a close relative of the Malayan tiger at the Bronx Zoo, found to be infected by COVID-2, was found to have a medium score for virus binding to their ACE2. Several other species of felids, including domesticated cats, were also found to have medium risk for binding of the virus to their ACE2 proteins. More research needs to be done to understand whether COVID-2 uses ACE2 to infect cats and what the potential is for transmission of the virus to other animals. Dogs and their relatives, such as wolves and dingoes, were found to have low risk for infection via ACE2. These results do not exclude that the virus can infect dogs through other cellular receptors, but this does not seem likely, likely based on recent studies. What about bats? 37 species of bats were analyzed the largest sampling ever. Surprisingly, all bat species, including the Chinese horseshoe bat, were found to have very low scores for ACE2 binding to COVID-2 spike protein. These results indicate that the ability of COVID-2 spike to bind human ACE2 was likely acquired in one or more intermediate host species. Our results do not exclude that COVID-like coronavirus is commonly found in bats use bat ACE2. What about other vertebrates? No birds, fish, amphibians, or reptiles were found to have ACE2 that would likely bind to the viral spike protein. However, this does not rule out that these other vertebrates can be infected with COVID-2 using another cellular receptor, as, for example, the MERS does. MERS virus. So what are the takeaways? Our study identified a large number of mammals, 103 in all, that can potentially be infected by SARS-CoV-2 through their ACE2 protein. Our results provide a directed approach for the identification of an intermediate host or hosts for COVID-2 and hence reduce the opportunity for a future outbreak of COVID-19. Of the 103 species that scored very high, high or medium for the ability of their ACE2 receptors to bind COVID-2 spike, 41 or 40% are classified as threatened by IUCN. These species represent an opportunity for spillover of SARS-CoV-2 from humans to other susceptible animals, including wildlife, and should thus be a focus of intensive surveillance and conservation efforts. I want to be clear that our results are predictions and that except for those species that have been shown to be experimentally or naturally infected, all of these predictions must eventually be confirmed experimentally. I'd like to conclude by making three additional points. First, I want to emphasize the enormous scientific value of investments made in genomics over the past three decades with rapid, accurate, and inexpensive DNA sequencing methods now contributing to an explosion of data on genes and genomes of hundreds of animal species. Big genome projects such as BAT1K, Zoonomia, the Vertebrate Genomes Project, and the Earth Biogenome Project, which I lead, have made important contributions to the databases of DNA sequences that were used in our study. Second, 
Our study also highlights the importance of free and open access to data made available through public resources, such as NCBI and GenBank. Thirdly, zoos such as the San Diego Zoo and the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., have been critical in supplying cells and tissues for DNA sequencing and from comparative biology and medicine for studying the host side of things. For many species, especially those that are rare and endangered, zoos are the only reliable source of samples for genetic studies. I'm pleased that two distinguished geneticists and co-authors of our paper, Dr. Oliver Ryder from the San Diego Zoo and Dr. Klaus-Peter Koffley from the National Zoo, are available today to answer specific questions about how information generated by our study is being used by zoos to protect spillover infections from humans to animals. Also, as mentioned before, my colleague, Dr. Martin Uia, will talk about the implications of our findings for cetaceans, especially for those that inhabit the Arctic. Finally, I want to thank Joanna Damas and Martin Corbo, Marco Corbo, two postdocs in my laboratory, and 16 other collaborators from around the world for working so hard in a very short period of time to produce such important scientific discoveries. And thank you all for attending and for listening to my briefing. And now I'll turn it back to Dr. Sfraga. Can't hear you, Mike. Mike? Hi, this is uh, Jack Durkee with the Polar Institute. Mike's seen his line drop, actually, um, so he's dialing right now. Martin, why don't you go ahead and get started with your presentation, and uh, Mike, when he returns, will uh, provide remarks as well. Martin? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Jack. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Mike Sprague, uh, for and the Wilson Center working staff for bringing this discussion to a global platform. Uh, my thanks to Harris, too, for this laying the groundwork on this pioneering conservation effort uh, that involved uh, a multitude of investigators that worked very hard to produce these results. And greetings to the international community with a uh, special hello to communities at the Explorers Club, Smithsonian, Canadian Museum of Nature, National Geographic, Harvard and Case Western Universities, and the National Science Foundation and the Prince Albert uh, II Foundation, and our Inuit communities up north as we learn to listen, care, and remain connected to our planet and the 4.5 billion years of knowledge that she holds. But what exactly are we facing in the Arctic? As background, uh, I've been a field researcher for the past 20 years in the high Arctic focused on narwhale and particularly the function of its extraordinary tusk. I've been in the water next to them in 36-degree water and assisted on tagging research teams with Fisheries and Oceans Canada and also have collected Inuit traditional knowledge and anatomical specimens. When we showed in 2014 that the tusk was a sensory organ system, scientists were intrigued and the public was fascinated. Since that time, narwhals have been in the lexicon of more kids than adults. It's the new awesome and cool animal for many. And with that adoration came a new appreciation of the Arctic environment where narwhals live, and the Inuit who observe and know the animal in ways science is only beginning to understand. We know that the Arctic is changing in almost every capacity at two to three times the rate of the rest of the planet. Changes in the sea, including the loss of polar ice sheet cover, CO2 absorption, ocean acidification, alterations in the chemistry of calcium. Then there are changes on land, including animal crashes like caribou going from 5 million to 2 million in just two decades. And other studies on animals continuing under the Smithsonian's Arctic Crashes Project. And then there are changes in the atmosphere, as magnetic north moves at 34 miles per year towards Siberia. 
so fast, indeed, that the world magnetic model, which guides everything from navigation system on ships to smartphone applications using Google Maps, needed to be changed last year to update the reference. So, the variables like animal migration, seasonal change, and ice and weather that give meaning to the six-season Inuit calendar are all in flux, making an already challenging lifestyle more unpredictable. Of the 252 mammals examined in the paper that Dr. Lewin described, tooth whales were categorized in the high-risk category of binding the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what does that mean for Arctic species? Well, the Stanford study recently looked at tooth whales like narwhal and beluga and found that they don't actually have the gene necessary to adequately establish viral immunity or defense against many viruses, including this one. And certainly there is an advantage for these whales to have these receptors since, as Dr. Uh, Harris Lewin described, they are involved in blood pressure pathways that can help these deep diving whales. And based on the high risk for binding the virus and tooth whales not having the needed immunity, certainly I think more study is needed to establish if this risk can indeed happen in the wild and examine the potential modes of transmission that might cause infection. And though we have largely focused on respiratory transmission, we also need to consider wastewater and fecal contamination. The SARS virus can survive four days in fecal material and over a week in wastewater. Two recent medical archive papers cited detectable fragments of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in wastewater systems in seven European cities over three weeks before the outbreak of COVID. And likewise, monitoring of Boston's wastewater titers of the SARS-CoV virus also uh, was revealed recently. And even if there is not a direct link from these wastewater levels to active infection, certainly sewage detection may be a good indicator of what might be coming down. Contamination can occur in multiple ways with increasing boat traffic, wastewater runoff, and substandard water treatment facilities. And though speculation might assume immediate destruction of such viruses in the Arctic Ocean, We also need to understand that this ocean is quite different than others. First, it's layered with the sub-Atlantic Ocean underneath, and unlike the consistency of salinity in open ocean water, there are multiple bracken water inlets used by migratory marine mammals, as well as glacial runoff and summer ice melt, adding to the fresh water system that can influence marine life and likewise viral survival. We all know that our freshwater systems are in peril, as most of the world doesn't have access to safe drinking water. The World Health Organization cites over 2.2 million people every year die of infectious diseases from contaminated water. Our oceans are also suffering. A recent Nature article states that viruses in the sea are a reservoir of the greatest genetic diversity on Earth, with approximately 200,000 different populations of viruses in the world's ocean environment. Now, most of these have restricted hosts and pathways, but the important message is that there is a vast viral ecology, and we are mixing the ocean soup with waste products of a planet now that has 7.8 billion people. So what do we know about the risk to marine mammal species to date? Well, coronaviruses have been found in beluga, Mm -hmm. bottlenose dolphins, and harbor seals. And yes, viral pandemics and epidemics can be real for marine mammal species. Back in 1988 and 2002, a harbor seal infection of the distemper virus killed over 50,000 animals. So potential risks are real. And as we continue to mix the environmental soup with collected waste and fecal material at one end and consumption needs for everything from food, oil, natural gas, minerals, and building materials, We need to be aware of how we are impacting our environment and indeed this marine environment. So now what do we do? Do we require scientists working with whales in the wild to undergo additional precautions or testing before being allowed to conduct research? What will be the new normal for zookeepers and aquarium workers? As with all provocative and thoughtful research, insights from the pioneering work of Dr. Harris Lewin and collaborators give us answers that can lead to better questions. Inuit subsistence hunters are safely consuming their hunt, but do we need to expand the monitoring of potential animal contamination? And what about waste and fecal contamination? How can we monitor new and increasing amounts of waste 
and associated viruses in the marine environment. We know plastics have made it to the Arctic food web. Should we not be looking at viral contamination sources? These are the next questions we as researchers and conservationists would like to see investigated. Thank you. Martin, this is Mike Sprague. Yeah, thank you for that, that wonderful uh, discussion. I apologize to all my line dropped, and we've, we've, so that was one technical issue. The second one is we had trouble getting Gladys connected. She is now connected all the way from Uganda, so I want to thank her for enduring the, the global technology. Um, I think we have now a wonderful foundation, uh, Gladys, for your discussion. We, uh, Harris, thank you for setting those, I think, contextual remarks, highlighting the, the value of the research, what the research is showing, and frankly, a bit frightening as to how this virus not just uh, uh, was jumping from species then into us, but also the implications further down the road. And Martin, thank you for ground-truthing this now um, through our global oceans, but also um, other species like, like the narwhal and, and others. Uh, you both have brought up a number of particular issues I'd like to pull a thread on after we open it up for questions, but I think this is a wonderful foundation uh, to now introduce Dr. Gladys Kalima Sikosuka, the founder and CEO of Conservation Through Public Health. And, and Gladys, we've had two really nice presentations setting up the, the scientific findings thus far um, and um, ground-truthing now that with Martin in the Arctic uh, area. And now we look at the breach to Africa and what, you, what your work is, is all about. Please explain that to us what you're finding, what your concerns are, uh, and, and the work that you will have going forward in the midst of this pandemic. So we welcome you, and I now turn the virtual floor to you. Okay, thank you very much um, for inviting me to this panel. Um, Sorry that we weren't able to connect earlier, but at least now I'm here. Um, yeah, COVID-19 is something that has really you know, disrupted the world. I'm going to talk about the work that we do with the mountain gorillas and how we're trying our best to prevent COVID-19 between people and these endangered great apes. Um, I've worked with mountain gorillas for over 25 years, and when I first started working with them, they were about 650. Now they're almost double. There's 1,063. And I was hired as a first veterinarian in the Uganda Wildlife Authority because they were concerned that tourists could make people sick. Gorilla tourism had just begun, and they felt that they needed a vet to stop this. And a disease like COVID-19 is a very good example of the kind of thing they were very concerned about. And one of the first things I found when I first started working with the gorillas was they developed a skin disease. And a baby gorilla died, and the rest of the group only recovered with treatment. And this turned out to be scabies, a coptic mange which came from people living around the park who had very little health care. And so we thought, oh, we, only concerned, we were only concerned about tourists bringing in a fatal flu, like the COVID, um, but actually what happened, it was a disease which is common in the community, but because gorillas are not exposed to uh, this parasite, and yet they're closely related to us, they, it made the baby gorilla die, and the rest only recovered with treatment. And they got it when they went outside the park to raid people's banana plants. Um, because before it was created as a national park, they couldn't really come out and people used to hunt them. But when it became a national park, people never used to touch the gorillas anymore. But they, and the gorillas lost their fear for people. And now they come out often. So they got it when they went and someone put out scarecrow with dirty clothing. And we started focusing a lot on improving community health. And... Uh, we set up there's been gorilla tourism rules, how how you view tourists. But in the past we have found that people have been breaking these rules because they haven't really seen that they're so important. And some of them from the very beginning were maintaining a distance from the gorillas when you're visiting them. It used to be five meters, but it was increased to seven meters. And you're not supposed to go up when you're sick, you're supposed to turn away to cough or sneeze. That was as far as the rules went. And but when COVID-19 pandemic began and we got the first case in Uganda, we got very concerned. And we teamed up with the Uganda Wildlife Authority. They asked us to help them to do some training of the rangers. And we decided to upgrade the regulations. So working together with uh, 
a Uganda Wildlife Authority, Mountain Gorilla Vet Projects, International Gorilla Conservation Program, and Max Planck Institute, and the local health centers in the community hospital. We decided to train the park staff. We trained over 100 staff. And the first thing that we told them is that, you know, a lot of the time, having done some research with, with uh, researchers from Ohio University, Dr. Nancy Stevens and Annalisa Weber, we found out that 98% of the time, people are told that they shouldn't get close to the gorilla. They shouldn't go beyond, you know, closer than seven meters. But 60% of the time when they were there, if the tourists broke the rules, they got closer than three meters. And 40% of the time, the gorillas broke the rules because now they're so used to people and they're very curious. And sometimes they get even closer than three meters, so it is very worrying. So some of the regulations we put up were that, you know, anyone with a flu or cough should not be allowed in the forest. And now that sometimes people may not know that they're sick, anyone who has a temperature is not allowed. A temperature above normal is not allowed. The very first index case in Uganda of COVID-19 did not have flu or cough. They actually had a high fever. And then, obviously, the hand washing and disinfectant has been stepped up. That's a stepped up. We really focused on that. And then wearing of masks became something that was something that people used to think about, but no one really wanted to do it. But now, because everybody's wearing masks and everybody's actually concerned about getting COVID from each other, let alone giving it to the gorillas, wearing masks has now become mandatory. And we were able to find that even if the time that we started doing the training, because Conservation through Public Health, our NGO, joined the National Disease Task Force. And that very day when we joined it, I asked them if they had surgical masks because they're going to do this training. And they said to me that you can't buy them even if you have money because you run out of them, which is quite surprising. But Someone from CDC said, actually, cloth masks can work with lining. So we went ahead and contacted a local entrepreneur, right, for a woman, who normally makes tablecloths for tourists, really nice, made up of the local chitengi. And I asked her if she could make masks. And she actually said to me that she's going to lay off most of her staff because she doesn't have any business. There are no tourists. And said she had to tell the women to go home. And I kind of said, I even need to, wear, to make masks. She was very willing to make them, and when she made them, she was able to rehire some of the women, which was great. So now all the park staff are wearing masks. Um, this was done with a, a generous support from International Gorilla Conservation Program. And now we believe when the tourism begins, all the tourists will have to wear masks. So everybody visiting the gorillas has to wear masks. Gorilla tourism was suspended on the 26th of March, um, and because of disease transmission threat. And uh, of course, having been lockdowns everywhere, it wasn't difficult to actually suspend it. But when tourists return, they're going to have to wear masks and temperatures will have to be taken before they enter in the forest. And the seven meter distance has to be really maintained. When we held a practical session the next day, it rained heavily, so I'm glad to be wearing actually a cloth mask. And so COVID-19 has enabled us to review the great viewing regulations not only for gorillas, but for chimpanzees as well, and to really upgrade them so that any disease, not only COVID, but any respiratory disease that is harmful to a great age is not going to result in their extinction or losing them because they're so few in number. Although the numbers are growing up, they're still very, very few in number. And another thing that we did is we went back to the community where we had disease outbreaks in Bindi and... Uh, disease spreading from people to gorillas. And we trained this week, we've been training the gorilla guardians who are people who safely had gorillas back to the park when they come out. And we've given them all masks and my uh, team is busy training them to, you know, have the gorillas back safely, be hygienic, how not to give the gorillas COVID and, you know, turning away to cope with sneeze and enforcing the social distancing which is great. So the human gorilla conflict team are now doing this. And at the same time, we're also going to the village health team, who are people who we've been training for many years, over 10 years, um, how to improve on gorilla health, I mean, how to improve on community health, how to stop people making gorilla sick, and how to, you know, get people to take up family planning and all these things that improve their quality of life. 
And so now we're talking to them about how not to give COVID to each other, how to educate their communities to prevent COVID, even looking at the TB patients, because TB patients often have the same symptoms as COVID-19, but also how to prevent spreading to gorillas. So we created some posters also with support from Solidaridad. And so in this way, we are managing to reduce the risk of COVID spreading amongst local communities where the gorillas come out, the villages where they come out, and from people to gorillas at Bindi. Um, yeah, so this is what I wanted to say so far about what we're doing. But one other thing I also wanted to bring up is, is right now there's no tourism, and gorilla tourism has been contributing significantly to the communities around Bindi and to the Ugandan economy. And for example, 60% of the money for the Uganda Wildlife Authority, which has 22 national parks, comes from gorilla tourism, which is from Bindi International National Park and Megahinga, which is in the Buringa. And now with no tourists, it's affecting the wildlife authority, it's affecting the local community and all the tour operators. And the local community are not only hired by the park, but they have businesses, they sell crafts, like this lady from my Pernod Woman, Evelyn, and her husband. And then they also sell food, accommodation, meals, community works. It totally transformed the, the Bindi community when tourism began. And so we are concerned that they have to eat, so what are they going to do next? And there's a big concern about poaching, not only at Bindi, but all the other protected areas where tourists come. Um, so that's a big, next big concern. But one way that we're addressing this at Conservation for Public Health is we started a social enterprise, the Gorilla Conservation Coffee, three years ago. And we found that although most of our customers were tourists, who come and stay at the lodges and want to support the community who are growing the coffee. Um, some of them are outside. So we just got an order from the UK. We're also working with uh, John, who is such a pangos.com, and he sells in America, and he's actually run out of coffee. But cargo planes are moving, so that coffee can still go out. So you can actually support the gorillas, prevent the community's poaching or destroying their habitat just by buying coffee. You don't have to actually visit them. So it's an opportunity for people to keep supporting them. And other, you know, things like Ride for a Woman, now she's started to make masks. She's also still earning, in spite of children not being there anymore. Um, and we're trying to look at other ways to support the community. As conservation NGOs, we're all trying to look at all these ways. Since tourism was suspended, how are people going to survive in the absence of tourism? Thank you. Gladys, thank you very much for that um, narrative and that description of what's happening there, not just uh, at your particular uh, park and your work, but also what's, how it's impacting um, the gorilla population, the primate population, but the, the very communities um, that rely on um, programs and conservation efforts like yours. Um, the economic development ripples, the health ripples, uh, the, the health and safety of, of the species you're trying to protect, uh, and how that ripples across uh, a broader perspective. Martin, you also teased out uh, not just, the, of course, the very important issue of narwhal and other like uh, mammals, the impact of this virus could be on, on them, but also the way in which we have infected, could infect the environment and how that might work its way into subsistence chains, um, but also the, the, the economic impact and the, I think the impact of tourism, right? The, the idea that uh, this virus could uh, stay in either fecal matter or in waste systems for so long, uh, that, that's, that's a bit of alarming. And then the implications for economic development there, aside from the very important and very real issues related to health. And, and, and Harris, thank you again for laying the foundation for all of this, uh, just having us understand better where we think this uh, virus uh, started, how it jumped species, and then got to humans. One one question, and I would and I would open it up to the floor here. But one question, maybe either Oliver or Klaus, uh, maybe you could follow up, or Harris, is, is this: Is every my, my question is this? Uh, so I'll take the the speakers th uh, moniker here and, and just ask the first one. Um, you have all sort of highlighted to me <clears throat> that this this virus, like others, can mutate 
perhaps when it goes from species to species. And I wonder if we're in a vicious cycle here where one species, it could jump from one species to another and mutate. And now we're dealing with that, that kind of a mutation. And second is now we have a mutation in another species, in another part of the globe. So if it mutates, if this follows, right, if it mutates in Africa or mutates in the Arctic, are now we dealing with a rolling pandemic that's so very hard to catch up with? That is a question for any of you. Um, I'll just leave it there. Who would like to take that? This is Rather Harris. Convoluted this question. is Harris. Yes, please. Yeah, this is Harris, and I'll, I'll try to uh, answer your question uh, succinctly in simple terms. Um, there, there are uh, quite abundant recent data uh, looking at uh, the sequence of SARS-CoV-2, all isolates from all over the world, and the most recent data indicates that the virus actually in human populations is mutating very slowly. And, um, and when you look at where the mutations and what kind of mutations are taking place in the virus, it seems that the virus is, is relatively stable. And um, what we know so far is that none of, or maybe one of the mutations might affect the virus's function. So I think that's very important. Uh, there are strains out there, but none of these strains is apparently more path pathogenic than another. Now, the, the, the situation in terms of the zoonotic potential, you know, that is something that is, is some, it could be very difficult to predict. But what I would say is the tools like ours, these genomic tools, and using artificial intelligence and deep learning methods about the nature of the binding of the virus to its receptor can be used to predict which species will be, will be susceptible if the receptor is known and if you have a mutation in a known part of the, 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 the receptor binding domain of the virus, how might that influence binding to a receptor or possibly another protease or another uh, molecule in the host. And so this really demonstrates the incredible value of these genome databases for allowing us to investigate questions related to uh, zoonotic potential of SARS-like viruses. Thank you for that. Very helpful. Um, I want to remind everyone online that if you hit star one, star one, you will get uh, the first question is from uh, Lena, uh, and I believe is uh, on the board of Wild Foundation. To ask the question. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity. I, I just wanted to come back to a question concerning the gorillas. Um, when I was listening to the doctor speak, um, there was mention about people visiting the park, but given how much and the sort of the masks that will be used and temperatures that will be taken, but given how much discussion there is about um, asymptomatic spread, I worry um, about a great chance of infection if people aren't, in fact, tested. Um, so I wonder if there's a possibility for people to be tested before entering the park. And I ask this question not knowing anything about what test accessibility is like in uh, Rwanda, which I know is an important part of this. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for the question. Um, and it's a really good question. Um, Yes, if somebody is asymptomatic, and actually 80% of people with COVID-19 are asymptomatic, and that's what is now being found out. And, you know, if somebody doesn't have a temperature, um, and even if they're wearing masks, it could be a problem. And, yes, I think the ability to be able to test everybody who comes in could be considered. Um, currently now in Uganda, a test costs $65. And the, the, there's been wide testing, you know, that you, you do, 
reduce the impact of the virus, and we have very few cases. We only have 83 cases in the whole country right now, and no deaths yet. Um, and it's affected about 30,000 people. Um, but and now they're going to test more widely in the community. It's, still, it's, a, it's something that we could consider. Although, and that is why it's so important to maintain that seven-meter distance. The one that we, we found that in the research that people were breaking it, that seven meters is long enough that even if somebody was, you know, first of all, if you cough, you cough into the mask. So that's a much reduced risk to the great apes, to the gorillas. But maintaining that seven-meter distance means that that is a very long distance for you to cough and, you know, spread the, the virus to the gorillas. So, yes, enforcing the tourism rules, enforcing that distance. Good enough people are used to social distancing now <laughs> with the whole pandemic. But I think it would be much easier for the tourists to follow these regulations now because everybody has faced COVID-19. They, you know, all over the, you know, Europe and America, where most of the tourists come from, it has so many cases. So to be so easy to explain to somebody why they have to maintain the distance, why they have to wear a mask, why they're not allowed to go up and sick. Thank you, Gladys, very much. Martin, uh, the, the, the circles that we run in here in the Arctic, you know, it's a big area, but it's a big neighborhood, but a small community. So I have uh, friends texting on my personal cell phone <laughs> a question for you, and, and that is, if you don't mind, <laughs> would, you, would you address this issue of um, – I'm going to try to boil several down here because I have four or five coming from friends in Iceland, Greenland, and, and Northern Canada, all about um, the, the implications for the subsistence communities uh, in these regions who rely on the ocean uh, for their very subsistence. Can you talk about potential implications here uh, for this virus in the Arctic food chain, specifically, um, I'm trying to boil down several here, specifically the narwhal? Yeah, this is uh, obviously going to be a very important issue. It already has become an issue because people remember a lot of the influenza virus carriers and, you know, people's first questions were, is it okay to eat, you know, wild birds? Because um, that was the first order of concern. And I, I think with regard to the marine environment, we really don't know, uh, the, you know, the transmission mode. We don't know how possible it is, but... Certainly, Dr. Lewin laid out a pretty good format for listing whales as a high-risk community. And we've already known that, you know, in the instance uh, of cats and they having a medium-binding capacity being able to catch COVID, that certainly whales uh, are susceptible and indeed will, you know, be able to likely bind this virus, although that needs to be shown. So, we're at a very early stage of understanding the possibilities and potential risks. I would say for now, this virus really hasn't affected a lot of these high northern communities. In Nunavut, where I primarily do the research out of, they just reported yesterday before our call uh, the first case in Pond Inlet, uh, which was released on uh, Canadian News. And nobody knows even how that transmission happened, um, since it's a very isolated community and the transport is pretty much limited to cargo shipments coming in and out. Um, but I think the, the short answer is, as I impl implied with waste, that even if we don't see these as indicators of transmission, these are good ways to monitor viral input into an environment. And and we need to start being proactive instead of chasing a problem. So I think for now people are safe. I don't think this is uh, a concern they should have at the time now for you know the wild the hunt that they do and eating subsistence foods. Um, and certainly don't want to be alarmist about that. You know we want to back away. This is more about we need to understand more about how we are impacting our environment and the repercussions that may occur but also not dismissing the science, which Dr. Lewin pointed out, that these whales do indeed have these same receptors and have a high binding capacity to them. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to condense a couple of questions here and impose on both Oliver and Klaus, uh, because the, the few that I have here are, what, what's the role, basically, what, is the, what has been the role of the National Zoo, the San Diego Zoo, in supporting the very research and the work that 
um, uh, Harris pointed out at the very beginning of this discussion. Uh, Oliver, can I, can I impose upon you to go first and Klaus second? And again, the question is what has been your role and perhaps what will be your role going forward? Thank you. Uh, the San Diego Zoo has uh, had a program for over 40 years for banking viable tissue culture cells and biomaterials that we called a frozen zoo. And uh, that resource was established for conservation purposes and has contributed to numerous uh, conservation uh, applications um, for endangered species. But it's also been a resource that has allowed the rapid elaboration of the field of, of comparative genomics and conservation genomics. So in this era of, uh, of, of the greatly accelerated se sequencing of, of genomes, uh, we have been a, a reliable and uh, resource to um, uh, contribute samples and help design studies so that we specifically include endangered species, such as in the study that uh, Dr. Lewin mentioned. Thank you for that. Uh, Klaus? Yes, and for my part, um, thank you, Mike, um, is that, you know, it was interesting for me, um, I was already doing a parallel effort to the study that Dr. Lewin led. Um, um, with some colleagues here at the National Zoo because um, one of my bosses at the National Zoo um, received a request from one of our staff veterinarians to look into this issue with regards to the endangered black-footed ferret because that veterinarian had seen a study that had shown that you could infect domestic ferrets and um, domestic ferrets could develop infections. And so the vet became concerned about what the potential of SARS-CoV-2 might be for a black-footed ferret. So I looked into it, developed sort of a similar type of analysis um, to what Harris, Dr. Lewin's group was doing. And, but I eventually joined forces with um, Dr. Lewin um, because there was just a much more broader um, base of expertise involved in that collaborative group, which turned out to yes. be excellent. In terms of my part, um, we were doing, um, we contributed a number of, we mined out the genes of the ACE2 receptor from a number, about uh, 12 different species that my group and my colleagues here at the National Zoo, the genomes we had generated from animals, often from the National Zoo, um, and those were all endangered species. And so with Dr. Ryder and myself, we really thought, you know, this type of research had an important implications and potential impact with regards to um, um, endangered species, and especially those species that are managed in zoos, like the National Zoo and the San Diego Zoo. And it's had a profound impact here um, at the National Zoo because even while at the very beginning of um, the lockdown related to the pandemic is that, you know, the zoo staff here, um, as well as in other um, zoos around the country and the world, were putting into place, you know, special requirements of, you know, the animal keeping staff and the veterinary staff to interact with these animals, so wearing personal protection equipment. But, um, you know, our study helped actually to even increase those safeguards to even a higher level, um, given that, you know, some of the species that were found to be at high risk or medium risk were some, you know, included a large number, a good percentage of um, endangered species. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Uh, we have another uh, question from Lauren Risi, who is our Director of our Environmental Change and Security Program at the Wilson Center. Lauren, are you on? Lauren? Maybe she's on mute. Lauren, if you're on the line, please press star one. Thank you. Okay, maybe Lauren's not on. Well, we have uh, five minutes or so. I want to remind everyone again to star one. I know we've got questions mounted up. Harris, maybe I can uh, just go back to you for a moment. Can you just highlight for us again the next steps? Uh, your report is on our website. It's available uh, through links, and we've provided those as well. 
Can you walk us through the next steps? Because really what I want to do is virtually impose upon all of you. I think that this is uh, something that I'd like to follow up on in six months from now, have a follow-up to this call, uh, where we can circle back around with all of us online here that, that have been invited to speak and see where we are. So can you give a, remind us again the next steps in your work and the implications for that? Yes, uh, sure. Thank you for that question, Dr. Fraga. Uh, the the group that uh, collaborated to produce the ACE2 results uh, immediately uh, decided that um, that they would continue and we would continue to pursue other genes and proteins and pathways that might be uh, that are amenable to study using the te- the methods that we use for ACE2. And so it is critically important to understand all of the elements of cellular infectivity if one is to understand species differences, not just in whether or not they can be infected, but what happens after they're infected. If they develop, will they develop antibodies? Will they develop symptoms like COVID? And will they develop full-blown respiratory disease that is similar to COVID? These are things that are not known in any species except perhaps for rhesus macaques at the moment. And so it's critically important to do that for a number of reasons. Uh, We can understand the basic biology of coronavirus and COVID-like infections, but also it may yield therapeutic targets and vaccine targets. And that is very critical, fundamental uh, research that must be done. Second, on a more practical level, since our study makes predictions about individual species and groups of species, it's very important to test directly and experimentally which cell types, and you don't have to infect the animals themselves. You can do all of this work with, say, cells that are provided by San Diego Zoo. This is why we work closely with Dr. Ryder and others. Uh, And obtaining cells that we could look at Uh, directly whether the cells can be infected by the virus and, you know, what, you know, are they very efficient binders and how much virus they produce and what types of cells in the animals express the receptors for the virus. So that's a very important issue, uh, especially when it comes to like bats and pangolins, which, you know, which don't appear to bind uh, the virus through ACE2 You know, the reason that it produces such severe disease in humans is because the receptor is widely expressed in the animal, but most notably on bronchial uh, epithelium and intestinal epithelium uh, and um, kidney cells and heart cells. So many of the symptoms that we see rely on the broad expression of ACE2 in those hosts. We don't know the expression for most of the species on our list. So that also needs to be determined. So these are two sort of big areas uh, that I think must be followed up on. And, uh, you know, the people in our group and some of the people on this call will be aggressively trying to, you know, obtain uh, funding to pursue these lines of research. Well, thank you for that. So uh, let me... None of you can say no because we're on a virtual phone call. So let me invite you all back in. We'll, we'll arrange something, and I think maybe we'll, we'll discuss a particular time, maybe six months down the road, you'll all tell me. But I think this is worth it to hear more about the work that Gladys is doing, Martin's doing, and Harris, your team is doing. So I want to thank all three of you. Uh, this hour went very, very quickly. Uh, I want to thank you all for the work you're doing uh, and the perspectives, not just from the scientific community, but just the the communities who are being impacted uh, across the board, again, from Africa to the Arctic, but also the implications for the very species that we we often work with and rely upon, frankly. Uh, Let me just remind all of those who are still on the line that there is another follow-up to um, an Arctic-focused program. It's called uh, COVID-19 Impacts in the Arctic, and that is a partnership program on the 19th and 20th of May It is a Zoom virtual symposium, two days, five hours per day. And that's a partnership between the Wilson Center, 
the U.S. Navy War College, and the United States Arctic Research Commission. Again, two days, the 19th and the 20th, from noon to 5 Eastern via Zoom. We have information up on the Polar Institute's website, as well as the Navy War College and the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. That will be uh, a tour de force of speakers looking focused on the impacts of COVID-19 in the Arctic. I want to thank all of our speakers today for bringing us this fantastic discussion. Thank all of the people online who listened and participated. And again, we'll look to a follow-up coming up uh, maybe six months from now or so. So I thank you all for listening, and my thanks to a wonderful group of experts. We appreciate very much you sharing that with us. And with that, I will say have a good morning, afternoon, or evening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Sam.